0: Thank you, Michael and team. Really appreciate the worship you brought us this morning. Well, again, my name is Chris Quinn. I'm the youth pastor here. Uh, I have the privilege of preaching for the next four weeks while Pastor Ron is on his annual, uh, I guess you'd call it study vacation while he gets ready for next year's sermon. So we're going to, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at a story about what it means to be a passionate witness for Jesus. You see, during my freshman year of high school, everything changed for me. I came in believing that I was going to have this one specific group of friends, but what ended up happening is that that group of friends completely abandoned me from day one of high school, and so I felt really lonely. I felt like I was never going to make any friends, but as as these things usually go, quickly I made a group group of friends within my fifth period class my science class Uh, and we started a lot just by playing card games together we were eating lunch together Uh, it was just an awesome time but at the center of this friend group was myself and this other guy named sam and we struck up this really cool friendship but later that year in april is when i gave my life to jesus See, I grew up in a Christian home, but I really made it my own in April of that year, of my freshman year. And so come June, after having been a Christian for a couple months, kind of figuring things out, getting my feet wet, my friend Sam invites us all over to his house, and he wants to uh, have a party and watch a movie and just hang out to celebrate the end of the school year. Now because memory fades and yes i am not old but i also do forget things i cannot tell you what movie it was that he was wanting us to watch but i do remember my feeling that immediately when he said the movie i i thought in my mind i i shouldn't watch that i don't think that'll be good for me to watch that movie and so even though i felt very afraid of losing this group of friends that i had really enjoyed during that year i knew i had to stand up i knew i had to say and be bold and have courage to say what i needed to do and so even though i was afraid i called up sam and i told him of my decision and i said i would love to come over if we were to watch something else i would love to be there and when i told sam of my decision i can tell you he was not happy his answer to me was essentially why are you holding this get together hostage to make it what you want it to be He was very angry. I tried to explain to him over and over again, no, that's not the reason. It's not my intent. But unfortunately, the friendship with Sam ended and God was faithful. He provided a new group of friends the next year at school, um, but he never really wanted to talk with me again. So we spent the next three years basically avoiding each other in the halls at school. But as Christians, we must face the fact that the way that Jesus has called us to live will be vastly different from the people around us. You see, far too often we seek to blend in with the culture to be relevant and relatable. But this is often at the cost of no longer being able to be a witness for Jesus. We often then seek to avoid suffering because of our fear. Whether it's fear of rejection, fear of ridicule, fear of some form of suffering. We avoid it at all costs. But we must recognize that following Jesus is extremely costly. It's not comfortable. It's not easy. And that choosing to follow Jesus will lead to suffering at some point in our life. Whether it's physical, relational, or emotional. But there is great hope and a great reward for those willing to go through this suffering. And here's what we want to learn this morning. That passionate witness is a willingness to suffer for the glory of God and for the gospel to be proclaimed. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to cover verses 1 through 2 this morning, and we're going to discuss these four aspects that the Apostle Peter lays out for us of what it means to to passionately witness for Jesus. And we're also going to look at some examples from the book of Acts and some of the other characters and people in the New Testament in order for us to understand more of what this means. And so what I'm actually doing this morning is I'm actually completing what was supposed to be a two-part series done by Pastor Micah, our previous worship pastor. Uh, this was, it was called My Utmost for His Highest. And uh, how this all worked out is Micah was, gonna, was originally supposed to preach this in May of this year. But obviously with all the COVID stuff happening, Micah was so busy putting together our service streams that we decided as a staff to push off that series. Well, then when we decided to push it off, Then Micah got a new job. Uh, Praise God, it's been exciting to hear his story with that. But now I get the honor of finishing the series for Micah this morning. And so the first message he talked about was passionate worship. That worship is not just an emotional feeling that we get by listening to Christian music, but it's actually something that we do as a way that we live. Because look at how we can learn to define passion. This comes from the dictionary definition. This is the Merriam Webster definition. It says, As passion is a, an intense, driving, or overmastering feeling or conviction, it is ardent affection, an object of deep desire or interest. So you can see that this is a pretty emotional kind of thing. But when we look at the original meaning of the word, when we go back to the, uh, the Latin root of the word, that word, pati, literally means to suffer completely different than the way that we understand this term. But it's also at the root for our word patient, as in a hospital patient, someone who truly is really suffering. So this is what we have to understand, that when we look at what passion means, it means to suffer. It's not this just deep-seated emotional response to things that are happening, but it's something that we are willing to suffer for. But I also want us to understand this concept of witness, It comes from the Greek word martyreo, which means to be a witness, to bear witness, give testimony, to utter honorable testimony, to give a good report, to conjure, implore. And this is where we actually get the word martyr from, when people who were witnesses for Jesus were willing to die for that conviction, for that belief. But at its core, this word just means witness, like an eyewitness in a court case, so I want us to remember when we combine these two things, what we are learning this morning is that passionate witness is a willingness to suffer for the glory of God and for the gospel to be proclaimed. It's not just this deep-seated emotional response that we're going we're to share with as many people as possible, but we're willing to suffer in order to do that. So let's go ahead and we're going to read 1 Peter 4, 1 through 2 to start. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. And so what we're going to do is we're going to kind of piece, look at this piece by piece, little phrase by phrase. So first phrase we're going to look at is, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body. You see what... Uh, I learned from when I was in high school, and I've said this a lot when I come to preach, uh, but we always have to ask the question, what is the therefore, therefore? My high school Sunday school teacher would be so happy with me that I just drill this in all the time. But what Peter is doing is he's picking back up a discussion he had from chapter 3, verse 18, where he is talking about how there's this value of imitating Christ's example of being willing to suffer for the will of God. And now he's going to extend it through this next section about the fact that it's about suffering for sin and death, that he is going to defeat those things. But Peter, throughout this entire book, he is seeking to remind his readers about how to live for Jesus While their citizenship is really in heaven with Jesus, but continuing to live physically here on this earth. And so, what he essentially is saying here is, if Christ had to suffer on the pathway to glory, so Christians must also prepare themselves in the same way to suffer. I know, nice, happy, and rosy kind of things that the New Testament writers often talk about. But notice what Peter said here, too. That because Christ suffered, look at that, in his body— not out of his body, but in his body. You see, crucifixion was purposefully brutal and terrifying. It was this signal to anyone who would dare oppose the Roman Empire of what would happen to them. And you see, the Romans were experts at inflicting the most suffering possible to lead them to death and to stretch that thing out as much as possible. So when Jesus suffered in that way... I mean, he really suffered in his body. But this is also why it's absolutely absurd to believe that Jesus didn't actually die from crucifixion. There are people out there who believe that. Because of the fact that he suffered in his body and that they were such experts at doing this. And notice that it's not out of his body, this ethereal experience where he's a ghost and he's not really suffering on the cross. But we have to understand something, that this suffering in his body was the only way by which our sins could be redeemed and that we could be saved. See, if Jesus had not come physically as a man, that he could not have experienced the temptations that we all experience and then yet live completely sinless. So that he could be then the perfect atoning sacrifice on our behalf. There is no way that could have happened without him coming physically in body. And so this helps us understand our first aspect of Peter's view of suffering. Is that Christ suffered to defeat sin and death. You see, he did not allow for his suffering in taking the punishment of our sin on our behalf to defeat him, but rather he used this suffering that he went through to defeat sin and death. He completely flipped the script on what was happening. You see, what once was a symbol of domination and the power of the Roman Empire in crucifixion, Jesus turned on its head, turned his suffering on the cross into the mode by which sin and death were ultimately defeated. But I want us to look at an example of how the original apostles in the early church kind of handled this situation of how Jesus had died to suffer, or to suffer for defeating sin and death. So we're going to look at the story of Stephen from Acts chapter 7. Where I'm going to read that really quick for us. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. You see what happens before we get to this moment in the story. Stephen has been chronicling Israel's history about how they have consistently rebelled against God. And now they are doing the same thing with Jesus. Man, no wonder they got mad. How would you feel if somebody started talking to you like that? So he's saying, you have constantly rebelled against God, and now you're doing it with Jesus. So then we get in verse 56, we see this claim that Stephen makes. He's saying that Jesus is this son of man character that comes from the Old Testament, who was this figure of a conquering king coming to sweep away all of Israel's enemies. And so now Jesus actually made this claim at his trial, and Stephen is making, this, is making that exact same claim. But here's the, here's the crux of this. Jesus has been crucified at this point. So for the Jews, this was highly offensive. It's no wonder they're covering their ears. They don't want to hear it so as to then put shame on themselves. They're not acting like little five-year-old kids. They're like, la, 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 I don't want to hear it, okay? They are wa- not wanting the shame to come upon themselves. But here's what we have to understand. You see, the scandal of the gospel that we believe is not just about how sinners can be saved from their sins, but that the Messiah was crucified. It was, the, the crucifixion was a major symbol of shame and dishonor. And so this is not what the Jews expected. This is not what they were waiting for, to have this supposed son of man, this conquering king, come and die on a shameful cross. That's why Paul says the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, because it just does not make sense. So for claiming this, Stephen then gets stoned. And what this means, a lot of times people think it's about a large group of people just pelting him with a bunch of, you know, uh, baseball-sized rocks, which would really hurt, Uh, but it's even worse. What it actually would do is they would take him to a cliff, and there would be some rocks at the bottom, and they would toss him over the cliff and it would likely be somewhere between 10 to 12 feet high and drop him onto the rocks. And if that didn't finish him off, then they would drop a huge boulder on top of him. Pretty violent, pretty scary kind of death that would happen to him. But Stephen, we have to understand this, he suffered to proclaim this truth that Christ suffered to defeat sin and death. That Jesus was not the kind of conquering king they were looking for, who would at this time sweep away all of their enemies. But instead, he was this crucified Messiah who came to reconcile us to God. And Stephen died to proclaim that truth. And I want you to think about this for a second. What have you lost as a result of sharing this truth? What are you prepared to lose to share that truth? I don't know about you, but that that question terrifies me thinking about all the things that i could lose but is jesus worth it enough to risk it for that let's continue let's look at the next phrase peter then says arm yourselves also with this same attitude See, when he says this phrase, to arm yourselves, he's using a militaristic statement of a a warrior putting on his armor. And so Peter is using this in a spiritual sense. You're putting on your spiritual armor, taking on spiritual weapons ready to fight. But what is he saying to arm yourselves with? The same attitude of Jesus. And that word attitude could actually really, and probably should be translated as the word intention. See, it's like this concept. Just as a warrior intends to, when he puts on his armor, he is ready for battle. He is ready to go to war. So should Christians be prepared to suffer. And so since this is a direct instruction from Paul, we have to ask ourselves this very important question. Do I intend to prepare myself to suffer for Jesus or do I avoid it out of fear? Here are some ways that we might avoid this suffering out of fear. Avoiding it would be hiding your faith from others so you don't create a stir. Avoiding it would be compromising on your convictions and what you know is right and go towards what the world would want you to do. Avoiding it would not be speaking up for truth when you know that lies and falsehood are prominent. And avoiding it would be hiding inside your home rather than seeking to meet your neighbors so you can tell them about Jesus at some point. But I want to make sure I clarify something here. This does not mean that we now purposefully try to bring suffering into our lives. Like if we heard on the news, oh, this, in this particular place, Christians are suffering. Well, this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm going to go there and say, come and get me. That's not what Peter is talking about here. It's that we would simply live our lives obeying Jesus, live our lives for him, preach the gospel, and we are prepared to suffer whatever the consequences would come because of that fact. And this is also because the gospel goes so contrary to human wisdom. You see, human wisdom says that we can make something of ourselves by our own effort. We can reach God by simply being good enough. We can reach the pinnacle of human wisdom if we're just educated enough. We can reach enlightenment if we are just centered enough but the gospel says to all of us that we are not enough and cannot do enough that our savior had to die then as a crucified criminal because he was enough for us. What a beautiful story that is. But that is why many, many Christians around the world suffer and why we in this country, I think, face ridicule and rejection because our faith does not make sense to the rest of the world. And truly, It's not necessarily supposed to. Yes, we can be good at defending our faith and making it rational rational and reasonable and logical, but here's the problem. It doesn't make sense sometimes when you really, to the rest of the world, when you think about it from their perspective, because it's always about how they can make themselves right. And so this is how we must learn our second aspect, is that Christ's attitude Must also be ours. You see, there's been this insidious thought and teaching throughout church history, particularly in the American church, that Christians are somehow not supposed to suffer. They're supposed to be healthy, wealthy, and happy. And yes, God wants us to be happy, He wants us to have real joy in the world. But there are many so called preachers out there who say that if you are suffering in some way, then you are not truly a follower of Jesus. And if you come across somebody like that, I actually encourage you to not listen to them again because they do not understand the Bible and they are twisting the Bible to say what they want it to say. But what Peter is doing is he's preparing his readers to know that this is exactly what they should be expecting. They should be expecting suffering to happen. We must always be ready and prepared for that suffering to come. But I want to look at the apostles' reaction in one story in the book of Acts that is absolutely baffling to me. This is in Acts 5:41. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. You see, the apostles had been preaching in the temple, preaching about Jesus. And now they were being punished for it. They were flogged. They were beaten. And they walked away. Instead of being angry about their rights being violated, they said, we rejoice that we're suffering for the disgrace of Jesus. What? That is so foreign and strange to us. But I want you to notice, who is this suffering for? For the glory of God. So that Jesus would be made known. So that Jesus would be glorified. And this is crazy that they would rejoice. But I want you to see something else that happens in the book of Acts. This happens in Acts chapter 12. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. You see, this death that happens to James here happens in about 44 AD, about 10 years after Jesus had ascended up into heaven. And I think this is a very calculated move by King Herod. What he's trying to do is he's trying to get right at the heart of the Christian movement. You see, Peter, James, and John were part of the inner circle of Jesus. They were there at the transfiguration. They were the three kind of inner circle of Jesus's 12 apostles. And so right away, King Herod gets James and then he sees, oh, okay, the people are pretty happy about this. They, I'm getting some approval from this. All right, I'm gonna arrest Peter too. And so he's thinking this is gonna be a huge blow. And what we see after the story is Peter is miraculously freed He just walks out of prison without them seeing him. It's awesome. That's why the Bible is amazing. But now what we're seeing here is we're seeing that the apostles' perspective was that they were expecting this to happen. They knew this was coming. They were prepared. Jesus had told them, you will be hated by all because of me. You will suffer for my name. And now it's happening and they're rejoicing. This is their perspective. That this is, they're saying, we're ready for this. This is what was supposed to come. So we have to ask ourselves the question, is our attitude the same as Christ and the apostles? Are we ready and prepared to suffer because we are living for the glory of Jesus? Let's continue to look at the next phrase. Because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. We see a correlation in this phrase to Romans 6, 7, where Paul says, "'Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin.'" And there's a little bit of a difference here. Notice Paul is talking about death, and Peter is talking about suffering. It's not one and the same thing. But this is not saying—what Peter's not saying here is, if you suffer, then you're no longer going to struggle with sin. Like, if you're at work one day and your coworker makes fun of you for being a Christian, then you go home and go, "'I'm done with struggling with sin.'" It's not what he's saying at all. A commentator by the name of Peter Davids wrote about this passage. The desire by Peter here is to draw out a principle from Christ. He suffered for sin once in the past with the result that he will never have to deal with sin again. Meaning Christ died once for all for sin and does not have to do it all over again. It's over. It's finished. Sin has been defeated like we talked about earlier. But in a similar way, if we also suffer as followers of Christ for doing good and living for him, we know we're on this right path. We have this right attitude, that we're going in this right direction. And that we know, and this is what Peter is saying, that there is a finishing point to sin someday in the future. It will be done with forever. But I also want us to understand something about the Christian life. Because there is an aspect here that the power of sin over our lives will be lessened, as Peter is going to talk about in the next verse. But I want you to understand something, something incredible that suffering can do to people. And this is our third aspect, that suffering enables us to turn away from sin. And this may sound contradictory or foreign to you. This may sound crazy, but it isn't unprecedented in Scripture that this would happen. I want us to take a look at kind of the example of the Apostle Paul, kind of a very, very Reader's Digest version of his life and how he transitioned. You know, he was the persecutor of the Christians. We saw his name show up in Acts chapter 7 where they laid the coats, their coats at his feet and he watched them while they stoned Stephen. But listen to what happened to him shortly after he was converted. This is God speaking to a man named Ananias. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Notice who it's for. He is suffering for God. He is suffering for Jesus. And so let's list out some of the things he had to suffer through. This happens in 2 Corinthians 11. Paul listed out the ways that he suffered. He was flogged. He was beaten. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked. He was imprisoned. He was under constant threat from Jews, Gentiles, and even some bandits had threatened him. He had gone hungry. He had gone thirsty. He had gone without sleep. Truly, up until he was killed, he truly went through everything you can think of of suffering. Paul went through all of it. But I want you to see what the apostle's perspective was on suffering. And how it accomplishes this turning away from sin. Look at James 1, 2 through 3. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. You see, suffering produces perseverance. It makes us tougher to withstand even more suffering. And so James is saying we should have joy in the midst of suffering, knowing what God will produce in us as a result of that suffering. And I don't mean glib or fake happiness, where you're putting on that smile. But a deep-seated joy that is rooted in Jesus alone. But this also, this suffering results in our growth. Look at what Paul says in Romans 5, 3-5. through Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, suffering produces Perseverance which produces character, which produces hope, which all of these things shows you are growing and is going to lead you away from sin. Sin's power over your life is going to lessen and lessen over time. You see, suffering is a tool in God's hands that he uses to produce in us his character. Just as Jesus defeated sin and death so that we might be forgiven, so did he also defeat the power of sin over our lives. But sometimes, like I said, God has to use suffering and use trials as a way to help lessen the power of sin. But I want us all to understand something. God is faithful and has not abandoned us during those times. But he wants to use those times to produce something in us that we could not produce ourselves. What a glorious truth that is. So we need to have faith in the Lord's work while we are in the midst of these trials, in the midst of suffering, knowing what he wants to do in us. And it is good. It is a good thing he wants to do. Let's continue. Let's look at the last phrase, verse 2. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. So now that Peter has let us know, we're armed with this insight that we're going to suffer while we still live here on earth, and that we await for sin to be finally finished with, we have to live accordingly. And so now the choice is laid out before us as a follower of Jesus. Will we take the path of least resistance and simply just go after our desires? See, when Peter says that phrase, human desires, these are unredeemed human desires, these evil things that we just naturally tend to want to do, one that reflects our desires apart from God. But suffering can produce a result in us by not only removing sin's power over our lives and leading us to greater maturity, but it can also redirect our attention. So will you let it do that? Will you let suffering... Work in that way. Will you let God do that? Or will you allow yourself to wallow in sorrow because suffering is hard? Because it is. I'm not making light of it by saying this. Suffering is really difficult. But we must allow God to use suffering according to his will and help us to learn to redirect our focus, not upon ourselves and what we want to do, but for his will alone, even if it means facing suffering. So here's our final aspect, is that suffering refocuses us toward God's will alone. You see, again, let's look at the Apostle Paul, what happens to him from his own suffering. This is what he had to say in Philippians 3, 7 through 8. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I count them garbage that I may gain Christ. You see, he no longer viewed his life as his anymore, but it was now Christ's. He considered everything else, all of his human desires, all of his accomplishments, everything he ever had to be loss. But then he even uses this word garbage. And I'm just going to tell you right now, that is an extremely polite translation for the Greek word. The very polite word. What that word actually means is refuse. That gives us the better concept of what Paul is talking about here. He's saying everything else is refuse compared to knowing Jesus. When you play that comparison game, are you going to choose the refuse or Jesus? Feels like it's making it a pretty easy choice. But I think for most part, a lot of us choose the refuse not knowing how glorious Jesus really is. And how much the rest of our stuff and the rest of the world really is wanting, is lacking and giving us what we really need. So here's the question. Is this how you view yourself in your life? That everything you could have in this life is lost compared to knowing Jesus? Are you like Paul, counting it all worth it to suffer for Jesus for the sake of knowing and proclaiming him? Or have you lived in fear, hiding from the world your faith so as to protect yourself from suffering? Honestly, I have to say I know I've done that a lot in my life. It is so much easier just to hide and stay back instead of having to deal with what's coming. But as we see from the examples of the apostles, they lived for the glory of Jesus and they died proclaiming the gospel. You see, the apostles all suffered and died by brutal forms of executions, except somehow the apostle John. You see, it wasn't for lack of effort with John. He was tossed into a pool of boiling oil and he came out unscathed. It's an absolute miracle what happened with him. He was the only one that we know of for sure that died of old age. You see, Andrew was crucified at an X, why we say St. Andrew's cross. Peter was crucified upside down, not counting himself worthy to be executed in the same way his savior was. Paul was eventually beheaded in Rome in the middle of the 60s AD. And Thomas died in India by being speared from four different spears. Now, I want us to think about that for a second. Thomas, the guy that is often called Doubting Thomas, I think that's a bad name. I don't like that name for him, because that was a man who, once he was convinced, he went to India. He went real far. He went farther than basically anybody else at that time. But Christians nowadays are dealing with the same thing, suffering at the hands of their persecutors who hate their message. Around Easter in 2019, the Right Reverend Philip Monsteven, Bishop of Truro, announced the results of a study where he was cataloging Christian persecution around the world. You see, he concluded that Christians, not any other religious or people group, are actually the most persecuted in the world. Where he estimated that an average of one in three Christians in the world experience forms of religious persecution. And that he said, based on his conclusions, that the persecution has reached near genocide levels. Christians are being brutally attacked. Here's a small example from Nigeria, but very crucial and important. As of May 2020, 620 Nigerian Christians have been killed by Muslim militants in 2020 alone in 2019 those same militants killed a thousand nigerian christians they are targeting them they are attacking them including pastors and so why am i telling you this i'm not telling you this to try and depress you but i'm trying to give you a sober warning you see the freedom that we have enjoyed here in america over the last couple hundred years is not experienced by the vast majority of christians around the world and this freedom we have is not guaranteed to last forever So here's the question, are you ready to be persecuted for your faith because of your devotion to Jesus and for his glory? Or are you afraid and want to hide to avoid the suffering? I know my initial reaction is a little bit of fear thinking about that. But if you're willing to step forward and say, yeah, I can stand up for Jesus, then you can have this passionate witness that we've talked about. But let me remind you of the hope of stepping forward in faith. Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 5.10, And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. It's temporary. It will not last forever. You see, in the light of eternity with Jesus, all of our suffering will truly feel like a little while. He will restore us after our suffering in the eternal glory of Christ. Paul also tells us in Romans 8, 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. See, the pain of our present sufferings are not even comparable to the glory that will be revealed when we see Jesus face to face. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. This eternal glory that we will receive far outweighs our trials and troubles. And so, what do we do? This is what Paul says in the next verse. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. We fix our eyes on the eternal hope we have in Christ. And in Revelation, this glory is described as an absolute paradise. No more tears, no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more persecution, no more sickness. All of that is gone forever. All that is left is Jesus and his full glory, which we will be able to experience for all of eternity. We will want nothing. We will fear nothing. We will not feel like anything is missing in our lives And we will be ultimately satisfied and restored, and we will behold Jesus in all his glory. When we focus on this glorious hope and not on the present sufferings and persecutions, we can endure almost anything that the enemy of the world can throw at us, knowing that our future is set in paradise, and so we can stand up and be passionate witnesses for Jesus, what he has done for us and what he is continuing to do for us in our lives, and how people can be saved through the gospel. So a couple things to close on what we can do. If you're feeling that fear, ask the Lord to change your heart from being fearful about suffering and instead to step courageously through your fear into faith to live for the glory of Jesus. And then secondly, we need to remember that this eternal glory that awaits us when we persevere in this life as followers of Christ, how glorious that is. But also we need to remember that while we are here still living for Jesus on this earth, that Jesus is going to use the suffering in our lives to produce in us something that we could not produce in ourselves. This is the glorious thing we can wait for while we are trying to be passionate witnesses for Jesus. And let us remember everything we wanted to learn this morning, that passionate witness is a willingness to suffer for the glory of God and for the gospel to be proclaimed. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you've given us a glorious and wonderful hope, knowing that something greater is coming. Jesus, that we are also doing this for your kingdom, your glory, so that you may be proclaimed, so that the saving message of the gospel can be brought to all parts of the world and that all people, people's tribes and tongues can come to know you. Jesus, we pray we would have the boldness in the midst of this, God, knowing that there is suffering, knowing that there is ridicule and rejection likely coming our way. God, help us to have courage and boldness and to trust in your spirit to enable us to do that. We pray this all in your name. Amen.